If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Marsha, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You got this show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 158 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. I hope you're ready for a classic conversation with one of the most famous house guests in the world. That's right, everyone. Cato Kalin is here. Actor, podcaster, house guest, and witness at the trial of the century, the O.J. murder case. We talk O.J., we're talking Ice Wars, we're talking One Degree of Scandalous, Cato's awesome podcast. We're talking People versus O.J. Simpson. We're just talking. Cato and I have a fantabulous conversation, and that's coming up in just a few seconds. In these few seconds, I want to remind everyone to check out last week's episodes. Steve Young was my guest. He's a writer for David Letterman for over 20 years and the star and focus of the documentary Bathtubs Over Broadway, a documentary I am obsessed with, can't get enough, industrial musicals. You don't know what that is? Listen to the episode, watch the documentary. You'll thank me later. It's amazing. Also, the bonus episodes on Thursdays with Crossing the Stream segments. Binge watching TV suggestions for you. Don't miss out on that. But right now, without further ado, my conversation with Cato Kalin, the world's most famous house guest, sat down with me. We talked O.J. Simpson and oh so much more. It's a fabulous conversation. I'm excited to share it with you right now. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce you to my next guest, actor, radio personality, podcast host, the most famous house guest in the world, witness in the trial of the century, the OJ murder case. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian, Cato, Kalen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You said it just like a Jeopardy question. Uh, that was that. Uh, what's Cato Kalen's real first name? It's Brian, not Brain. <laughs> Yes, Brian Cato Kalen. So we've been following each other on Twitter forever. This is the first yeah. time we've uh, had the opportunity to actually chat and meet. So very nice to meet you in person. <laughs> Good to meet you, Mr. Uh, very funny man, by the way. I hope people see uh, Jeff on stage someday. I, I cheated at YouTube and uh, some of your stuff is just brilliant. Nice to uh, meet you. Oh, thank you. That is so kind. That is so kind. Thank you so much. I, you know, like everyone, I was fascinated with the whole OJ thing. So I got a million questions, but I want to kind of build up to that. I'd love to to know what you, Cato Kalen, what was your plan? <laughs> I'm like the mid, I'm a mid, Midwest guy like you are. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just an hour different time zone than you. I grew up in the Midwest. I went to the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, which is the second biggest university. And I was uh, pretty good in baseball. So I made the varsity uh, freshman year. I said, you know, I, I think I could be a pro. So I transferred to Cal State Fullerton from there. But in the meantime, I was doing a TV show at Eau Claire called Cato and Friends. And I said, God, this is this is great. And you become instantly popular because you're seen all over the city. It was sort of my backup plan to see if baseball, if I could become a pro. Anyways, I transferred to Cal State Fullerton, which is was at that time the number one baseball school. And uh, when I transferred, I saw these guys that were enormous. Uh, we scrimmaged against Mark McGuire, who was at USC. That's uh, sort of tells you my age. And I was nowhere near. I didn't I didn't develop whiskers till I was 38. So I saw I had no sh no shot. Although I could throw a fastball 89 miles an hour and I had a knuckle curve, I, I didn't make it. And uh, But I was doing theater, doing shows at Cal State in Wisconsin. And I said, God, I should just try to get into acting or in comedy. And um, sure enough, I auditioned for a movie long time ago called Beach Fever. If you're ever on an aircraft carrier, uh, it was on USA Network. And uh, I had the that sort of beachy kind of guy. And uh, at that time, guys like Johnny Depp were doing the little beach films that uh, I think Gary Marshall directed him. And I was getting those auditions. And uh, so I've had my Screen Actors Guild card 
uh, for uh, over 40 years. And that was my goal, Jeff, is to get an acting. Always wanted to be an actor. Always went to premieres. And a real quick story that I used to go to every film premiere and get invited. And no one made a big deal of it. But when I became famous from the OJ trial, everybody said, oh, look, at now he's going to film premieres, Cato. And, and it started a whole backlash. And I was going, no, I, I used to always do this. You guys just didn't know me. And then I always tell the story of when my career was kind of, you know, I did, did a few national commercials uh, for Jack in the Box, Coca-Cola and, and uh, uh, Slice commercials. The week before the murders happened, the week before I just tested for a film on my callbacks called Dumb and Dumber. And I was reading the Harry Lloyd part, Jeff Daniels role and a few other roles. Jeff Montgomery was casting. And in, in the meantime, since then, I've met the Farrelly brothers and became you know, I've gone golfing with them. And it was sort of like, wow, it all came around. And it took took over 30 years or 26 years before meeting it all. But it was like, geez, this is really interesting life. And uh, I'm still the exact same guy, Jeff, uh, you know, uh, still pursuing my career and still love people, even the ones that are haters. You mentioned uh, baseball. Uh, my friend Howard Rosner wanted me to mention that he loved you in basketball. <laughs> Well, basketball, uh, David Zucker directed that and wrote it. And he's also from Milwaukee. And we have a, a very strong connection. As a matter of fact, I, I was just married uh, uh, less than a month ago. That was at David's house. He hosted the entire event. We didn't have basketball set up, but he, he's more than kind. And uh, anything work comes up that he puts, he puts me in. And it's always great to have a, a, a connection, especially, as you know, Midwest people are just so down to earth. Oh, yeah. And Mazel Tov on getting married. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Cheers. And mazel Tov to you. I appreciate <laughs> it very much. It's been great. Honey, where are you? Jesus, she's out shopping again. Oh, man. For those of you just listening uh, who know Cato and can picture him from the OJ trial, he's still got incredible hair. <laughs> <laughs> I, my hair was closer to your uh, OJ era hair. <laughs> now I'm, I got uh, a little receding. It, you know, I hold on to hopes. It's so funny that Johnny Depp just had a trial, and the the first few days he had the Cato hair. It looked like he rented it mine from the '90s. And then they said, "Hey, Johnny, fix it up. Put it in a ponytail or something." Isn't it amazing with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard that the, there's still the fascination when a celebrity goes to trial? I mean, OJ was it was a murder trial, so there's a higher level of yeah. stakes there but like this was just two people who were doing really bad things to each other that really none of us needed to, to know about <laughs> yeah it was basically a dirty laundry trial and you know what jeff i always try to uh not get involved with the the og stuff but every it's always i get a phone call to do an interview from anytime there's a trial a murder that goes on they always call like hey what do you think of this and i try to stay away from it but yeah, inundated with Johnny Depp stuff, I said, you know what? I'm just going to post my own stuff and see what happens with, with that. And uh, sure enough, you mentioned I have, a like yourself, a podcast. But it all was created because I was approached so many times, like, Kato, you should have a podcast. And I, I never wanted to do it. And then I did the One Degree of Scandalous that uh, you can get the podcast anywhere you guys get your podcast, Apple and Spotify. The guy that I worked with was at Fox Sports, really successful reporter in journalism. He runs uh, Value Entertainment. His name's Tom Zenner. He said, this is what you need to do. So I did my the first one and I was like, felt so, uh, it's sort of like an, uh, this weight off your shoulder and I, I could express myself very cathartic. It gone incredible that I discussed the tr uh, death trial and I'm discussing so many different, let's face it, everybody in America loves scandals. Everybody loves to find out that someone's life could be worse than theirs. And I think it's sort of that Homer Simpson, not OJ Simpson, the Homer Simpson, Simpson theory where people watch the Simpsons because Homer's always in trouble. And it's like, Ooh, I'm glad I'm not him. Like I said, it's so cathartic to do a, a podcast and the guests and the scandals uh, that we relive current and old ones. And it's honestly, I'm not a promoter, but it really is fascinating. And I love doing it. Hey, well, it's great. And I think because you were part of one, uh, a trial and all that, I think it adds a, a level of credibility that a lot of the true crime podcasts maybe don't have. And it could, because just even being there yourself during the OJ trial, gives you a perspective of things that happened and you were aware of things tangentially that maybe no one else would have been just because you were there. You know how it works, you know, you know, so you bring a, a great point of view to that, that type of, of content. Plus you're right. People just can't get enough of it. Yeah, they can't. And you know what, you know, and I think people, like I said, they really want to see other people in pain. And I noticed that too. And I, 
you don't really, you become, uh, I, I mentioned this uh, on a few interviews and it's so true. You become a soap opera character and people have their judgment of loving you or hating you. And you no longer become a, a real person to anybody. And if you, you can get bashed by people, they don't really consider your feelings. And people ancillary to your life from parents, husband, wives, kids, they don't care. I, I think I give that perspective of, of uh, I'm very, very happy and a gregarious person, but you know, sometimes you have to hide it when you're really hurting. And uh, I, I think I did that. And, and now, like I said, it's such a release to do a podcast and get your feelings out there. And it, it just helps me out. I think I help others too. Yeah, it's great. It's great. And it, it speaks to what you said earlier about people knocking you with premieres. People just want to take everyone down a notch, right? Oh, here's famous Cato. Let's, oh, look at him. He's just strutting himself. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, they only see the bad, you know? And so it's because that makes them feel better. And it's like, come on, people. Which is funny. I know you do comedy and I've been doing some stand up. I do lots of hosting all over the country. I notice that when I do any kind of hosting, if I'm out of Los Angeles, the people are fantastic. The inner LA crowd, I just think there's a Cato stigma sometimes and it's, it's difficult or I always think maybe it's in my head. But if I get out of town 25 miles out of LA, I can crush it. And it's really amazing because I think people like seeing someone out of LA uh, that they don't normally get to see. Not that I'm saying a celebrity, but I'm saying it's really refreshing to them and, and to myself to be out of Los Angeles doing anything because people are so accepting. Yeah, I think also probably the people in LA are like, why didn't I get that gig? And everyone else is just happy to see you. <laughs> people are, Jesus, why couldn't I? Does anybody here win the Heisman? Who's murdered someone? I want to live in that house. So like I said, I said, why couldn't I have moved in with Jessica Simpson? Damn it, that Craigslist. <laughs> hey, just want to take a quick break. Thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my amazing conversation with Cato Kalin. We were about to dive into his Ice Wars project. And then don't worry, OJ Simpson's coming right up. And we're back. Oh, so much good stuff. Oh, yeah. Before we get into some other stuff, I you sent me a clip, this new project you're doing called Ice Wars. Oh, yeah, it is. So Ice Wars is basically prize fighting on ice, MMA fighting on ice. It's a created by Charlie Nama, who's a dear friend of mine for many years actually in Detroit, lives in Detroit and also in Florida. He was he played hockey. And Charlie said, God, everybody loves the fights at hockey. And they come for the fights. And uh, he created ice fighting, no hockey game. It was so successful. May 21st, we did our first one in 2022. If people go to Ice Wars on Instagram or anything on, on uh, Twitter or even Cato underscore Kalen, you'll see the comments. And uh, Jeff, the comments are like, this is the brand new sport that we're falling in love with. We're on Fight TV and they did the Jake Paul, Mike Tyson fights at FITE TV, Fight TV. They are gung-ho on it. And it's, it's so exciting that I'm on that ground floor and we see it growing. At one time, there was one UFC fight. And now it's like UFC, I don't know, the 3 million and 12 right now. It's, we are, are going to be in our second one. We also know that someone wants the third one. And we sell out. I mean, who couldn't love these these guys? All NHL guys that used to play, and and they know it's an art form to be on skates and fighting. It really is an art form. If anybody's gone skating before, you're from Detroit, and I know you know the Red Wings. Absolutely, it, it's really really tough, and it's it's super exciting. You know, most of the guys I've met, they're all uh, from Canada. I mean, with some that are from the USA. The kindest people I've met in my life. These guys just go, "Well, I'm going to punch someone in the teeth, and I hope I win, and that's it." And then they hug. They go balls out. I mean, it's the real deal of fighting. So someone gets crowned king of the rink. AJ Galante is the president of the company. I don't know if you watched the Netflix show, Untold Crimes and Penalties. It's the number one documentary on Netflix. AJ Galante and Jimmy Galante have the most incredible story. And that's how we also got formed there. Uh, AJ has a boxing rink. His father was compared to Tony Soprano. He was uh, he bought his son at 17, the, his own hockey team. I, I, I implore people, please rent. Netflix, uh, Untold Crimes and Penalties. And that's another way that we started with Ice Wars. And like I said, all the right elements, the stars aligned. That's really cool. And we do a, a weekly show on live on Wednesdays. One of the guys on the show always talks about the Untold series. He covers every one of those. Oh, go cool. There was one called Malice at the Palace where uh, my friend Howard Rosner, actually, that I mentioned to you earlier, he was there working at the Palace when that whole huge fight between the Pistons and the, I'm not a sports guy, but I will say that Ice Wars, I think will be huge because your description was the exact 
immediate visceral response that I had to you via Twitter DM when you sent me the clip. I was like, oh, this is perfect. It's hockey. And you removed the hockey and just left the best part, which is the fighting. That was like, I'm not a sports guy. So it's like, but that's always awesome. And then I was explaining to my friends, I'm like, oh, Cato showed me this clip. It's basically, like, it looks like MMA on skates. <laughs> yeah. And we get, we, like I said, we crowned someone king of the ring. And in Hollywood, I think, you know, uh, you're in showbiz, you go into any kind of pitch meeting. If you're going to pitch a TV show, you pitch anything, you, you know, you try to get a deal. But when you can pitch a show in 10 seconds and someone goes, I get it, that's our show. They get it. That's the first path to success, I think. Absolutely. Yep. So I had a question about the OJ trial. My first question actually is, how did it impact you internally knowing and this is like after once you kind of got through the trial and you could yeah. probably relax and and realize that but the fact that you were living with someone capable of murder and did murder. I have a, a story where like my roommate in college shot his girlfriend and killed himself. So it's it's interesting to me to kind of understand like where your head was, because back then a lot of people didn't go to therapy or anything. Right. It wasn't like. Right. But there's a reality at some point after all this, after the whole media zoo passes down, you're like, you think to yourself, holy shit, I was like, I was like living with a murderer and, and I was at one point living with someone who was murdered. It's like, how did that play in your brain after everything kind of settled down? I would say that to this day, you have, I've had dreams, nightmares that constantly exactly you pinpoint it, that I say that exact thing to myself. It's like, my God, I was living with a murderer. And then it made me start thinking of, when you are any but person walking in the streets nowadays, I just wondered, made me wonder to myself, I wonder how many times you've actually bumped into somebody that has killed someone. As morbid as it sounds, it's like, especially in the, the nowadays where I think that life is not important to many people, uh, and especially not educated, without education, life is, they don't, certain people don't view life as important. So I always think that thought. And then I, 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 I was always thinking, it's like, what if things were sort of different that that somewhere I would at, during that time that I saw something and then he had to kill me. I mean, it's it, these more these are dreams that you go, Jesus. What if he had to also uh, kill? So uh, yeah, it, it's sort of like you get that. I get the queasy feeling in my stomach. You know, even today, I think that the trial itself, uh, the pressure has. You know, I definitely developed ulcers and the stress was certain things in my stomach still pains today because it was a for me. I've never been in a courtroom my entire life until the OJ trial. I never, I had no parking tickets, nothing. And the first time I'm stepping in a courtroom, it's, it's a double homicide trial. You know, I never hired, had to hire a lawyer and do all that, but I met some great people that I would, you know, as advice, just get a lawyer so you can go through exactly the questioning that'll be happening, meet with both sides, the prosecution, defense. So it was a, a good year. It was a year and a half trial. And I was down at the courtroom for my testimony for six days, but down there for a month because I was on hold the whole time and just staying in a little like closet area waiting on hold. Yeah, it's it's got to play with you because I know I read I was kind of just digging a bit. But like when you when this when the murder happened, were you a suspect? You know, I I, I mean, right in the beginning, I mean, before they moved on. And I imagine everybody has to be a suspect in the beginning to find out because five in the morning, someone's knocking at my door. It happens to be four detectives. I I never even knew. I just let these guys in and they didn't say anything. And then they finally said, we're the uh, uh, detectives of LAPD. And I said, hey, what happened? And the whole time I'm doing that, I'm saying, did OJ die? Did this plane crash? Because that's the last thing I know. He went on a plane. And I was disorientated. I was like, what this five, what's going on? And then they they came in my room and asked me everything. What clothes did I wear? What's going on? Are these your shoes? And I go, yeah, I wore this stuff. And they're looking under my boots and everything. I'm going, I have no, I have no idea what, what's going on. So I think as, as far as suspect, I'm sure that's where they're doing their job to find They don't know me. And then uh, OJ's daughter was in a, a bungalow next to mine, and then they woke her up. So yeah, I suppose everybody was. And then after being in the room and at the police station for pretty much, uh, I think it was at least 12 hours or so, I think they interviewed me long enough, and then I was they let go. And I said, we'll be in contact with you and that. So they interrogated you pretty, pretty hard right after this. Yeah, I was in, I was in a room, but it wasn't, it wasn't, I, I, I didn't think of it as hard. They just were asking me questions. They didn't, uh, it wasn't a forensic files to me. It was just questioning and talking to me. I think they, uh, uh, I, the one thing that I always remembered, Jeff, is when I was being escorted out after being questioned at OJ's house, not my bungalow, but in the actual main house, uh, they walked me out. They wanted everybody out of the house at one point. So they just said, 
I'm walking with detectives. They say, oh, watch out for the blood. And I looked down and I saw blood droplets. I was like, whoa. And I always think in my head, watching many Columbos, I think that was just to see my a reaction maybe. But it, it was just like, it shocked me that there were little droplets. Yeah, it's amazing. Like they look for those little things. Like I was watching a documentary or something on the bo- the, the guy who did the Boston Marathon bomb. Yeah. And one of the, you know, they had all the crazy cameras going and- when the explosion happened, he looked the opposite way of everyone else. And that's how they knew that was him. And they, at least I'm going by whatever I was watching. <laughs> yeah, no. That's, but, but it's you know, a fascinating it's, it's, psychology, um, right? So, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, you're talking about in college that you had, if you could, how did that affect you though? It's really interesting to me because talking with you, you, uh, I didn't know something, you know, that's sort of uh traumatic that it was your roommate that shot his girlfriend and then himself. So two people were killed. No, actually she lived. So it's, I was living with this guy and this was like, we, it was a room blind. I didn't know anyone really to the college I went to. And back nowadays, you know, you, you meet people on Facebook groups, you get to know them for six months before you move it back then. I just got a letter said, you're living with this guy. Okay. So we're living together and it was just, he was a little off. Okay. And right. And so one time my friend Tim was in my room and he opens up the drawer, uh, desk drawer. And I'm like, dude, that's not my desk. So he just shuts it. Okay. Later we're back in the room just to F with me. He opens the drawer again, just to get a reaction out of me. But there's a note in there. It said, do you like going through my stuff? Okay. (laughs) Insane. There's no way. Okay. And so there's this some level of weirdness going on here. And he would do weird stuff with his girlfriend on the phone and he put like a show on. And it's like, I get it. Like when you're watching stuff, you never think point A is going to end at point Z, somebody getting shot or somebody getting killed. It's just, right. it's not something that really goes through your head. And so one day he goes to Wisconsin, which is where his girlfriend was. And I think the story was, and again, this is just, you know, secondary, but like that he was going to kill himself in front of her because she broke up, but she ran. So he shot her, hit her in the back of the neck. It kind of hit a soft spot in outer mouth. So she ends up being perfectly neck, fine. Outer mouth? Yeah, like I, that's, you know, as I recall. And so, and then they found him in a hotel. He had killed himself. And I say the other thing that happened to me is I had a lot of CDs at the time. Now I know people are like, CDs, what are CDs? But at one point having a hundred CDs, and this is the late nineties, that was that's where all my money went because I didn't go, I wasn't into drugs. So right. it was odd to have that many CDs at this time. <laughs> but my sweet mate, so I had moved out. I have a new room. He robs me, takes all my stuff. That affected me a lot. I mean, there was 10, 15 years where I couldn't walk into a room without casing the room and really being worried. But the other guy killing himself, it was a little, because we didn't see it and it was a little surreal. Yeah. You felt weird. The girl was okay. It was, but the thing I remember to this day is the parents coming to get their stuff and it not really emotionally impacting me huge until years later when I had kids because I couldn't, you know, putting that together with how, what they were actually going through. At the time, I had no context to that. And it was right. just them going to get the guy's stuff who was crazy and killed himself. Yeah, I mean, it was like, but years yeah, later, it was like, I was like, oh, as a parent, I was like, oh, that was, we were, I was witnessing the worst moment of their lives. And it was like, whew, you know, so. If you don't get her on your show as a guest, can you get her on one degree of scandalous? <laughs> because that is, that's really an amazing story. And I think, like you said, uh, I was, you know, really into you telling me this. And that's how I feel about people, you know, true crime on podcasts are like the most fascinating to people. Uh, I think that's why, you know, like a show, like a forensic files on what uh, I think their 15th year, uh, it just, it's craziness. And I think, I think most of uh, like Hollywood feature films that you look at like a show, like a forensic file, which my wife and I watch all the time, everything is based. And you can see that Hollywood screenwriters are watching this stuff because so many of these are feature films because they're so interesting how off, like you said, you're, this guy was a little off. You find that people are just a little off and you go, how can people be like this? I mean, honestly, how can people be like this? And I, I go all the way back to my being raised with my family. My parents have passed away, but I come from a family of six. And I think you don't think of it at the time of how lucky you are that you had like a loving family. And it all relates to that because it makes sense that most of the people doing crime had a bad childhood. And it's like, Jesus, I never would think that when I'm growing up and you're like, I just want to get out of here. Why are you yelling at me, dad? And blah, blah, blah. So you really, I, I think you come when older you get, obviously you appreciate life. And like I said, I appreciate growing up in Milwaukee. 
Yeah. I agree. It thankful that I had a normal child. Yeah, you know, everyone you have the fight, normal fights and whatever with your brothers, sisters, parents, you know, mom and dad, you know, all that, you know, but but yeah, in general, yes, it was a very nice, loving, good bringing up. And so, yeah, you never know. It's like, so it's like weird. Like, that's why I was so interested in like that, you know, question that I asked earlier is like, because when you're around certain people, you just, you never yeah. know, you never know. Yeah. That, and also you asked me before about how, you know, you go through something traumatic. I think it's, it's less traumatic for me because I did have family support. And, uh, you know, I still have my best buddies from high school. And I think that is when you have people that uh, if you ever get cocky or anything, believe me, they humble you. And that is the my base of you can you can never be too big. That's that expression. It's like, trust me, you got good friends. They'll put you in your place and, and you should be put in your place. So I think the, the base of my dearest friends are still my dearest friends today. And uh, that's that's also very life saving to not see a, a psychologist or anything. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Cato Kalin, but we have to take a quick break. And we're back with Cato Kalin, about to dive into the People versus O.J. Simpson's mini-series, the actor that portrayed him, and so much more. And we're back. How did it feel when they brought back the People versus O.J., the movie? Not necessarily your feelings on the movie, which I'm interested in, but just all of a sudden it's like, at some point you're like, okay, it's been decades and you start to feel like this relief that it's never going to go away, but it's like subsiding a bit, right? There's other yeah. things. And then all of a sudden Ryan Murphy goes, no, <laughs> I want to remind everybody that this <laughs> happened and then we're going to create. And it's funny because it's like, there were 150 some witnesses in the OJ trial. And it's like, I mean, not no disrespect to any of them. I'm sure they were great, but I don't can I don't know that anyone can name anyone but Cato Kalen. I mean, it was like, and like you said, it was like you know from like January to October of the trial. And it's like hundreds of yeah. 150 some people, and it's like a lot of characters, and like boom, like you just kind of puts the show in perspective because there's a lot of embellishing, especially that you know that the writer it's based off is Jeffrey Tubin. So uh, you know uh, he's uh, petting petting cats on Zoom. So uh, I got I mentioned before that uh, the Daily News New York asked me, they gave me a screener, uh, Jeff, to watch the first one. They said, hey, would you write an article for our, our newspaper? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll see this. So I saw the screener. I wrote the first article, and they loved it. So it made me feel wonderful. And they said, do another one. Did another one. Next thing you know, I'm, they signed me to, uh, to do all 10 episodes. So, And I knew going in, I, uh, Billy Magnuson, the actor, he was a great actor. He didn't want to meet, which is fine. I, I would think as an actor, you want to meet if you're playing somebody, regardless of anything, I want to meet the person, even though I have my uh, how my set of how I want to play it. Right, right. But he didn't want to, and I knew that they were going to make me sort of like a, a Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But then he did an interview for People Magazine on some TV show, and the guy was fantastic. Billy Magnuson was like, I didn't want to meet Cato. I heard great things about him. I didn't want to. I had my mindset, so he said everything. But he was so complimentary to me. I said, like, I love this guy. So for that part, I, I knew they were going to go with the, the Spicoli, dumb, dumb Cato. But I was fine with it. When I wrote about it, at least I had a chance to explain myself. And they, they put the Kardashians in there a lot because at that time they knew Kardashians, even though they weren't in a lot of uh, the trial, they put it in there because they've got billions of followers and they're not they're not stupid at a network. It's like, get them in there. So they, they wrote a lot of stuff. And by episode three, I said, they put me in situations in the show that I wasn't in. I wasn't at the, uh, when the SWAT team came. I was uh, somewhere else, but I'm there. In the show, I'm there. And I was like, okay, there's too much Cato for Cato. And I started writing about, once again, it's a TV show. They're, they can embellish. They can do what they want. A lot of it, there were facts, but a lot of it was fiction. And uh, it won eight Emmys, so credit to Ghost to Ryan Murphy. You know, it's like it's like winning time. There's a lot of them that are saying, oh, this is a horrible Jerry West. It's a horrible. And my friends who are really into sports who know him, when they watch the show, they have an issue with it. But like people like me who watch it, you know, it's like, oh, it's just, it's a good show. <laughs> you know, I could see where they would do that. They, if you watch the old clips of you during the trial, you got that great hair. You got, you look like the surfer guy from California. So there's, I think they're playing yeah. more on the memory of, of what, of what it was. Yeah. A hundred percent. And like I said, I, I, I roll with the punches and that that's it. Let them do that. You know, Billy Madison went on to do the last James Bond film. So he was, uh, uh, sort of a villain in no time to die. I was like, hey, that, that guy played Kato. It was kind of cool. It's like, hey, man, Billy, it's Kato. Boom. There you go. So ipso facto. <laughs> yeah. 
The part I couldn't get over was David Schwimmer being Robert Kardashian. I just, I couldn't wrap my head around uh, Ross Geller being Kim Kardashian's dad. (laughs) Ross from Friends. Yeah. I was like, oh, look, it's Ross from Friends. He's Kim Kardashian. And and Travolta was uh, Shapiro. Yeah. I mean, they they just went. Hell of a cast. Yeah, that was, uh, you know. Kuma Gooding as OJ, he was okay. Yeah, your your perspective on it would be a hundred percent different than mine. <laughs> yeah, it's got a, it had to be. It must have been. A, it was probably a hard. I think I I saw a little bit of a clip of Marsha Clark realizing like she thought Sarah Paulson did such a good job that at some point she endeared herself to it a bit at least. Oh yeah, they, they hung out. They've had lunches. I she met she they definitely met a few times. I saw that on some. Uh, I think it was when Marsha was doing Entertainment Tonight or whatever. They they struck up a friend friendship, which is fine. So as I was kind of digging into this, everyone met you when you were you know, living with on OJ's property in his, his guest house. But I, and kind of just prepping to talk with you, I didn't realize you had lived with Nicole Brown yeah. prior to that for a whole year or so. And so that was, that was interesting. So you were part of this whole Simpsons ecosystem for quite some time. It was. Yeah, I lived, I saw the lifestyle on both sides. I think that's what it was really interesting to the uh, prosecution and the defense is I saw both sides of uh, just of relationships. And I, I saw, um, you know, and the Kardashian girls were just small girls and Nicole and the kids, Justin, Sydney, they bought a dog and they said, Mom, we want to name it Cato. And you know, we had Cato, uh, the Akita. It really was. Uh, Nicole just was this loving mom. She went running with her friends, Chris Kardashian, in the mornings. Uh, I had a casting business with a, a, another actor buddy of mine. So it was like everybody was busy and doing their, their own thing. But at that time, she was divorced. But when OJ would come by, I kept uh, wanting them. Uh, they started dating again. And I was like, oh, I never saw anything physical fighting. I only uh, I saw one time the after effect of a 911 call that I came late to. And OJ was gone already. But he had broken down some doors and... I just remember Nicole and I hammering the door shut again. We broke these French doors that would open up. So that's the only time. I didn't see it, but uh, that was part of the trial in the transcripts. And that was it. I always said, like uh, being raised, seeing my parents, when they, they rarely fought. But if they did, they always ended it with a kiss. And I would say to them, why don't you guys just kiss more? And that was it. So I saw both sides. Was it weird then? For, did it, how did it affect your friendship with Nicole when you started living with OJ? Well, Nicole asked me to move into the Bundy house, but it, the Bundy house was not a guest house. It was inside the house. And I said, no, I, I didn't feel right about that part of going there. And I was looking for a place to live. And then OJ just said, well, move in with me until you find a place. And that was it. So at first, yes, yeah, she was upset because she thought that I was uh, taking sides. And I honestly wasn't taking sides at all. How long did you live in OJ's guest house before the murder Six and a half months, seven with Nicole. Oh, wow. Mm. So you 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 actually, were, you were with OJ just before, right? You guys went to McDonald's, right? <laughs> uh, side note, I, I guess. Yeah, when- so, and the funny thing is, the McDonald's story was he came to my guest house uh, and knocked on the door to see if I could break 100. I didn't have it. I said, oh, I got 240s. And I said, will you take it? Take this. And uh, I, I used to run like the marathons and I run like 15 miles a day. And I had not eaten. I played basketball. And I just said, oh. Uh, I'm starving. Can I go? So I had no idea where we were going and all that. And McDonald's was not the kind of food I would eat. So he drove. And next thing you know, we're at some McDonald's drive-thru. So it wasn't a thing where I knew we were going to McDonald's. It was just a place he drove to a drive-thru. I saw, we had talked about some of the, it being, you know, your first trial and like some of the anxiety of like just being on a witness stand. But I saw a clip of uh, Marsha Clark talking to you about that. And it's like, it's amazing to me what lawyers, the questions that they'll ask, they're like, uh, I, you, you handed it to, who did you hand it to? What side was that person on? You know, even like what, uh, driver side for the drive through. Okay. Yeah, did you see that we were at the McDonald's of London? Yeah. That was this side. Why did you go to this McDonald's? Not that McDonald's. Did he have a, I know she was trying to figure out if he had a cut on his hand at that point or not. That's I think she was trying to get to, but it was just like every minute detail that, it's interesting when they try and get to the, like, who remembers these things? Who paid, like, I, yeah. I, I mean, we were at McDonald's. What do you want, you know? And I, I just remember, I remember him just, I, just in my mind, I just remember him, I think it was a Big Mac, but he just took maybe two bites, it was gone. 
and they had, you know, the French fries and all that. And I just waited. I didn't want to eat the Bentley or the Rolls Royce, whatever, whatever the car was. It was the nice, you know, the great Poupon uh, Rolls Royce. Was OJ like, a, did he eat McDonald's a lot? Because, there, and the reason I'm asking is apparently when he got out of jail for the stealing that football stuff he stole, his first meal was McDonald's. <laughs> That's so bizarre. I didn't know. That's a, that's a fun fact. I'll have, to, I'll have to look it up. I had no idea. And I know I didn't know his food habits. <laughs> I rarely, rarely even saw him. And he just happened to be that night. I think uh, in hindsight, I'm pretty sure that was to establish an alibi. So did you not hang out with him a lot? You just happened to hang out with him? No. Yeah, that was uh, rarely because he was at NBC at the time and gone a lot. And I just had the, I was just the guy in the guest house. It wasn't the main house. So I even thought when I did my, uh, uh, with the transcripts, I thought it was sort of unusual that he actually came to my room. Uh, cause it's maybe once he did it before, that's it. Oh man. So I, I gotta say for OJ for acting naked gun movies, <laughs> he was great. And <laughs> he's great. You know, uh, one, the thing about my wedding, I told you it was at David Zucker's and people that don't know that David wrote that film and directed Naked Gun. And I had thanked everybody coming to the wedding. I just said, uh, thank you so much, David. Thank you for the use of your house. But more importantly, David, thank you for not inviting Norberg. <laughs> Dave, right. That's right. David Zucker, The Naked Gun. I love The Naked Gun movie so much. Police Squad that it was based on was yep. one of the best TV shows. There was actually, I read a whole thing on that once that it failed ultimately, because it was so intelligent, you literally had to watch it. Like you had to watch it to understand the jokes and what was going on because it was so detailed where, you know, most things, hour long dramas or whatever, you can come in pretty much 40 minutes in and you can figure out what happened. Right. But that, and the Naked Gun was the only movie really ever based on a failed TV show. And now it's a, it's also, it built, like you said, it was successful because it built a cult following with people like yourself and me. And I was, even, I remember when Police Squad was it renewed? It was cut. I was like, are they kidding me? This is brilliant, this show. Oh, it was so good. Yeah. Anyone who is uh, listening, you should definitely go Google that. Find it on YouTube or something. Leslie Nielsen was just a genius at comedy. And I think his early work was all like drama stuff too, right? It's like, it's funny. Well, how people... Leslie's also an airplane. So they had a relationship right. when Leslie did airplane. So it was the right pick. They knew to go with Leslie Nielsen. So funny. I became friends with such with David, with Robert Hayes, you know, a striker in airplane. So I have all these, these relationships. And it's so funny, Jeff, how things go full circle. When you're growing up, you go, God, I would like to meet this person one day. And, and this, I always thought David Zucker, I go, oh my God, he's from Wisconsin. I got to meet him. And it just kind of all happens. It may take five years, 10 years, 20 years, but I just think uh, when things are supposed to happen, they sort of are, uh, once again, stars aligning and it's all timing. It's like, all right, if there's a God or whatever he's going, now it's your time to meet this person. So yeah, the universe always has, has a plan. The universe always has a plan. All right. So that's cool. So, all right. So back to the anxiety earlier, right? <laughs> I mean, let's go back to the anxiety. Cause I had, I had a question, a train of thought that uh, I think I forgot. So one of the things that happened was, after the murder, you heard a boom or whatever, right? You heard some, right. some stuff. And so then you go outside, kind of walking around, and then you just go back, right? And then later, Mark Furman finds the glove where you were, basically. You ever play out in your head five more steps? All the time. So what happened was, uh, um, is when the police came to my room, the detectives, I said that, uh, I said, maybe this is nothing. One of those things that you always see in a TV show is like, maybe this is nothing. But I said, the, the, there's no windows in the room I was in against the wall. It's just a wall. But I, there's a picture. And I said, my picture moved. And I heard these like thump, this thump that happened that made the picture move. So I said, my God, we, we, I think we had an earthquake, but it was behind this wall. So I told uh, all the detectives, Mark Furman, one of them. I was on the phone when it was happening. And the person I was talking to, I asked her, I said, hey, did you just have an earthquake? I think I felt an earthquake. And then she said, no, I didn't, I didn't feel anything. So then it, I kept hearing like a, a buzzing noise. And the buzzing noise, it happened to be Alan Park, the limo driver. And it was ringing. I could hear from the other part of this uh, ringing coming because it was quiet in the other house. I'm going, what's going on? And that made me go outside. But in hindsight, it's, it's kind of you know spooky, for lack of a better word, of going out there because it was sort of a June gloom. In uh, L.A., we get this June gloom uh, uh, from the oceans that come in towards Brentwood. And it was just the entire night, though, I, even before 
everything that I knew, it just seemed like one of those nights, like it was a, a night that there would be a werewolf. If you can picture that, that's what it looked like. And the rest is history. So they found that glove. Right. Yeah. Not to put a nightmare in your head, but I, the way I pictured it was, yeah, you, know, you go boom, boom, boom. And you're like, oh, cause you bumped into OJ a little bit later, but you know, boom, boom, boom. You bump into him right there. Could be a different, yeah. well, different story yeah, plays out. Because I can't, because it's, it's not connected, but I think the theory still to this day for a lot of people are there was uh, an air conditioning unit sticking out that he probably ran, jumped there allegedly over a wall, hit it, and a glove dropped. Got it. Unless Mark Fomerman put it there because he was racist. No, I'm just <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's, uh, allegedly, is I've got the lead detective. Well, there's uh, quite a few lead detectives. I think four of them. The lead detective Tom Lang. I became somewhat of a friend of Tom's, and he also did the. Uh, a Wonderland murder. So he has a history. And I always found it fascinating, you know, after the trial and during, I had so many interviews with them that obviously it's like talking to you, you kind of feel like you know someone. And so we, I mean, we didn't become friends, like let's hang out and have lunch, but you could tell there's a camaraderie and uh, Tom is going to be my guest on the uh, One Degree of Scandalous. And I cannot wait, not just talk OJ, just to talk about how, how they think and the kind of the questioning of what they look for. Like I said, it's, it's fascinating to me of the, the psychology of a detective and how they deal with crime and crime scenes and nightmares and having a wife. And how do you separate your life, your family, you know, with your family to work and just the stress, you know, police work is the number one uh, divorce rate. And I'm like, you know, what's it like? So it's interesting. I'm going to find out. Yeah, that, that'd be an interesting one to listen to. The whole psyche of so many of these professions is so, so interesting. Makes what makes them do what they do. And, you know, and it's, it's so dark and gloomy. Yeah, and the good news for you and me is the divorce rate for podcasters is less than 1%. <laughs> oh, I did want to ask you one question about landmark libel case. So, oh, that's like, I, that's one of the things that you, I cannot discuss. That was, I know you asked me beforehand, but that's, uh, Anyways, you look great. You look great. Uh, are we, uh, okay, so you can't talk about this. Thing. <laughs> Can I say it and you just not react? Okay. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, you were part of a landmark uh, libel lawsuit that then did find eventually that headlines could be considered libel. That, I thought that was what the interesting thing was, that they had skewed something towards you and you pushed back and they changed the law, which I thought was cool. And we'll leave it at that. All right. I know for a fact that I can say that in law books that I've, I've given, uh, I've gone to different colleges, law students, where I've done speeches, and they bring up, and uh, it's, it's the cool part is that it's in every law book. That is really cool. It's uh, so I guess we'll have to read about it in law books since you can't talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> and then uh, just because everyone will get mad at me if I don't ask, OJ did it or didn't do it? Uh, in my opinion, I have, I've said on many shows I think OJ's guilty. Uh, in my opinion. Right, right. right. Uh, the jury, the jury found him uh, not guilty. I think Robert Kardashian's. Uh, I think that's one of the most iconic things to see his reaction with that reading. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When you can pay for uh, millions and millions of dollars for lawyers, I think that's one of the the lessons learned from uh, the whole OJ case. Okay. Say Robert Kardashian or David Schwimmer. <laughs> right, either one. If you can't get him, get Ross. All right. Important question is the other huge major pop culture milestone that you were part of, at least in my personal world. Uh, you were in The Last Sharknado. It's about time. <laughs> I, actually, I call it Sharknado. <laughs> my only question is, how did they wait to six to get Kato Kalin as a cameo? It's like they went all cameo heavy on uh, two they started, but three on. I mean, I was like, boom. So I'm glad you were eventually in it. Was that fun at least? Can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, no, it was a uh, fun time. And I agree with you. I kept saying to myself, I said, how am I not in one of the Sharknados? And then I got the phone call on Sharknado 6. I said, yes. There is an easy shoot for two days. You just do your thing. And then you, you go to the premiere and you're like, my God, I was in there for an eye blink. But at least I can say I was in one of the, the Sharknados because it is sort of iconic. It is iconic. It's, it seriously is one of my favorite. I love all the Sharknado movies. I was obsessed with them. Yeah. So I was like, anytime I see Sharknado on someone's IMDb, I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then did you just <laughs> guest host Talk Soup or did you do a run on there? Uh, yeah, I did uh, two episodes Talk Soup. But I do know for a fact that supposedly the host that I, I is up for Greg Kinnear, but still to this day, that's the highest rated episode ever in Talk Soup's history. Oh, I believe it. I had Hal Sparks on the show. He was a, a talk soup guy for a while. I was yeah, I like Hal. Host of Talk Soup to me was always like the dream job. 
Yeah. Oh no, that's a great job. You know, I did the, uh, I had all, when I when the trial was going on that one of the first shows that they I did I'm still to this day friends with Bill Maher but uh, he asked me to do politically incorrect and that was my meeting at Gary Shandling and Gary uh, uh, didn't want to meet me because he waited for the show because he did want to he told me later who I had met many times after that event that he didn't want to like me and he had to set jokes uh, but it was uh, to this day one of the just one of the best experiences because of um, still being friends with Bill today and, and just being just that the energy of that whole politically correct episode was uh, to me, it was sort of fascinating. And that was in Gary's uh, HBO. We did a documentary uh, and that opened the show with uh, Judd, Judd Apatow's uh, documentary about Gary's life. I love Gary Shanley. He was one of my favorite comics and yeah. such a, such a loss. I did want to let me wrap up with how did you feel about David Spade's portrayal of you on Saturday Night Live? You know, it's so funny that you said this today. Uh, this morning, I, had, I did like a, a workout and I, 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 li- I look at a lot of the podcasts. I look at what's going on. So David Spade and Dana Carvey have a fly in the wall pat- podcast and their guest is Martin Short. And I was going to write in my comments, three people all did Cato. They all were Cato impersonators at the time. And in the order... Nothing bad with David was Martin Short nailed it. Dana Carvey and David Spade were a tie. But Martin Short did the best Cato. I thought it was me when I first saw it on his special. But yeah, I know David. He's great comic. They're all great. Dana Car- we do a podcast in the studio, Dana Carvey's son. So it's pretty exciting that I'm going, oh my God, I've always loved Dana Carvey. And now his son is uh, runs the studio that we do our podcast at. And then we talked earlier about like how People versus OJ sort of had that um, characterization of you. But on that episode of Saturday Night Live, the joke was from Norm MacDonald, Cato spent four days on the witness stand this week, making it the longest job he's ever held. <laughs> I love it. But, that, but, you know, but people take from Saturday Night Live and then that's the opinion they go forward with. There's so much political stuff that just gets fed to you from Saturday Night Live, not just about you, but just anything, you know, and I think they know yeah. that. And and so I thought, you know, so some of that feeding into it and then David Spade. Oh, yeah. Well, I was, I was, the, lead, I was the lead joke for many, many months on Letterman and Leno. Uh, and then the Norm joke turned out to be Norm wanted to meet and he and I had golfed probably 50 times together. Uh, the late Norm McDonald's and became, you know, friends from golfing uh, and basketball together. You know, what's so funny is uh, talking with you, Jeff, is that um, you've got me rolling in my mind with all these things are going like, oh, my God, I forgot that and that. And I'm going to bring this up on one degree of scandalous. All the things you brought up helped me out so much. And can I do a plug, which I hate doing? Yeah, no, go ahead, please. I would love for everybody to follow me on Instagram. It's Cato underscore Kalen. That's K-A-T-O underscore K-A-E-L-I-N. Kato Kalen. Subscribe if you can. The link to my bio on that for our one degree of scandalous podcast with Tom Zenner on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, wherever you guys get your podcasts and subscribe to the YouTube so you can see our pretty faces. The other show is Ice Wars on its prize fighting, MMA fighting on ice. And who will be the next king of the rink. Jeff, did I nail it or what? You nailed it. You think you you did that for a living or something. But uh, <laughs> Cato, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciated you hanging out with me. I'm glad we finally were able to connect and have this conversation. Completely. I really, I really am appreciative that you did. I wasn't putting you off and I, I can tell you don't think I did, but I wanted you to know I didn't. I, I, and I wasn't, and I'm so glad I did this. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody listening to Jeff's podcast. He is the best. You rule, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Let me hit stop. Recording stop. All right. Now you can tell me the real stuff. Oh, no, it cut off. And Cato revealed so much amazing stuff about the trial. Oh, that was off the record, but I thought I... Anyway. All right. Well, maybe we'll recover it. We'll do a, we'll do a part two. I kid. I kid. How amazing was Cato Kalen? After the interview, he moved into my guest house. He's been here ever since. He's a delightful guest. Let me say that right off the bat. I kid, I kid. All right, well, Cato was awesome. Check out Ice Wars. Check out One Degree of Scandalous, his podcast. Go on YouTube, deep dive into the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Get your fix of Cato Kalen. It's all out there. All right, well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right, it's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free Hashtag Roundup app at the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. 
fame, and fortune await you. Today's hashtag comes to us from Roly Poly Tags, a weekly game on hashtag Roundup, inspired, of course, by Kato Kalen's podcast, comes the hashtag, hashtag how I ended up on a true crime podcast. People went to Twitter to share how they ended up on a true crime podcast and hilarity ensued. All right, let's read some hashtag how I ended up on a true crime podcast tweets. Ripping off the mattress tag. Ooh, that'll get you on a true crime podcast. I told my mom I wasn't going to do the dishes. Disrespect can lead nowhere good. I never returned my last rental to Blockbuster. Ooh, that's a rough one. Hashtag how I ended up on a true crime podcast. Sat too close to a loud chewer. I can only imagine what happened next. I bumped into Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez in the elevator of the Arconia. That is definitely one way to end up on a true crime podcast. I drank a fifth instead of pleading the fifth. That can lead nowhere good. I turned right at Albuquerque. Ooh, you should have turned left. I walked into the wrong room, but there were snacks. I would have stayed too. If there's snacks, you got to stay. It's rude not to. My husband told me to calm down. Oh, I bet you ended up on more than one true crime podcast after that happened. I falsely claimed I could fold a fitted sheet. First of all, who would ever believe you? And then our final, how I ended up on a true crime podcast tweet, the glove fit. Oh, there we go. All right. You knew one of those was coming up, right? Those tweets are all retweeted at Jeff Dewaskin show on Twitter. Go show them some love. If you've got your own, add your own. Tweet it, tag us at Jeff Dewaskin Show. I'll show you some Twitter love. In the meantime, though, with the hashtag over and the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 158 has come to an end. I want to thank my special guest, Kato Kalen. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.